Hello and welcome to Long Story Short, the podcast from Arcadis UK, in which we explore what lies ahead for our cities and the people who live, move, work and play in them. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in this episode, water, air, greenery, space, the stuff of life itself. The tree is your asset. It takes up water, provides oxygen. So all of those depend on how healthy the tree is. My guests Martina Gervin and Joy Ladico will explore what's known as natural capital and what benefits it brings, but also how the people who build our cities need to think about what they use. You have the question, OK, well, you've taken these with a motivation for enhancing humanity. However, humanity is also enhanced by having good environment. Please also be explicit about where you're going to put it back. That's all to come on Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis UK. And a very warm welcome to today's programme. Joining me in the studio. Hi, my name is Martina Gervin. I'm Technical Director for Arcadis and I'm leading in the field of natural environment and natural capital. Hello, I'm Joy Ladika. I'm a journalist uh, working on politics and the environment. Water, air, greenery, they keep our cities alive. But do people really know what natural capital is? And do we realise how important a role it plays? First of all... Can we define what natural capital is? Joy, it's an economic term for the most natural stuff on earth. Yes, so we have always thought about nature as this sort of almost incalculable mass. Uh, And we see the trees and we see the sky and we see the water and we think, isn't that lovely? At some point, environmental economics began to get this new term in it called natural capital, where people said, well, actually, rather than just hugging these trees, why don't we begin to actually count their benefits? And their benefits go beyond just the timber that is produced. And you begin to think of it as an entirety, as a kind of holistic entirety, and say, well, actually, what is this worth to us in terms of soil health, in terms of uh, carbon dioxide, carbon stores within trees, in terms of air pollution, in terms of water storage and icebergs? Let us try and actually do an accounting system for all these amazing natural assets we have, not just the ones that we use and turn into a product and put into a shop somewhere. Martina, how would you define natural capital? I think the tree is a really good example. If you look at the natural capital, the tree is your asset. That's what you're getting benefit from. And you get a lot of different benefits. You know, passive cooling, the tree gives you shade, it gives you air quality benefits, it it takes up water, um, provides oxygen. So all of those benefits, though, do depend on how healthy the tree is. What does it mean when you're dealing with people at Arcadis? It's a broad topic, a really broad topic. And for us, it's about how we can improve the services we provide, improve what we do for our clients, making these holistic decisions. So, you know, I would say natural capital is the things that we think come for free, basically, but they don't. So for every one pound, for example, you spend on the shop on on food, we spend another pound on clearing up the degradation or damage done to the environment from producing that food. So we're trying to make better decisions for our clients, better decisions in projects, and that goes from strategies to design, planning, and then, you know, actually the, the financial mechanisms as well. And there is a distinction that's often made, isn't there, um, Joy, or has to be made, between what's nice to have, such as clean air and a nice green park to run around in, and also what's necessary to sustain life. Yes, so when we're talking about our assets, we think of it as a balance sheet. And as we begin to deplete our assets, we begin to have a problem because our capital store is reduced. 
on a big level, that is climate change. So when we've got too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're creating climate change, which is creating an imbalance and ultimately a deficit for how we run the world. When you are talking about water usage and you're basically using too much water from all sorts of underground aquifers, they, it's irreplaceable. Um, when you're cutting down forests, you're depleting carbon storage and it causes a problem. The other side of natural capital, it, it can add in some a further accounting, which is how we as humans interact with it. And that is what makes us uh, breathe well. Um, and that is having clean air, not having lots of pollution. And that's having green spaces and interaction, which in fact is very good for our kind of our well-being and our connection with the natural planet. Well, the way natural capital improves our quality of life has, in fact, been measured. Let's hear now from the Labour peer, Baroness Young. She's former head of the RSPB, former chair of the Environment Agency, and she's now the head of the Woodland Trust. There is absolutely no doubt that having green open spaces and wildlife and trees and plants has major proven evidence-based impacts on health and mental health. So if you walk in an open space for 13 and a half minutes every day with trees and greenery, you can reduce your risk of depression by 50%. But I bet you anything, I couldn't find you a local plan that says that. Um, But Martina, natural capital isn't accounted in nation's wealth accounting systems. Why isn't that the case? Well, actually, the UK are quite advanced in this and we are, in fact, um, creating natural capital accounts for all of our ecosystem services. DEFRA and the Office of National Statistics are doing exactly that. And when you look at the value of even just some of the ecosystem services we have counted, they're about half of our GDP. So half of how we count our usual financial wealth. The great thinker in the UK on this is Dieter Helm, who's a professor at Oxford University. He was chair of the Natural Capital Committee and was also an advisor to Michael Gove when he was Environment Secretary. And they started to introduce a proper form of accounting for our assets and the Environment Bill, which has never appeared, would have directed money towards the things that in fact enhance our natural capital rather than deplete it. What happens if we don't make it a priority, Martina? Well, we we won't see a future. (laughs) It's as simple as that. So part of what we do is, is saying, yes, it's fundamental Yes, we, we, you know, we have a responsibility of stewardship for the environment. Um, however, we, if we want to survive as a people, um, we need to take account of this. There are disbenefits um, of not having access to nature. So, for example, people will have a, a reduced life expectancy by 12% not having access to nature. And when you think about it, it's very obvious. The human eye can discriminate over 2,000 shades of green, but maybe only 100 shades of red. We have grown up being able to discriminate in our environment because we've needed to eat and shelter and figure out what, what we're doing. And the more and more we become disconnected from that, not only are we reducing these services that we need for life, but our physical health, our mental health and our social health is really, really suffering. And especially in cities, people, I think, are deciding that we don't want to live this way anymore. We want to live a different way where we take our streets back, where we have green spaces, where our children can breathe. Joy, have we recognised how much we actually need this greenery? 
as we built cities, we built them in a sense to exclude nature because nature was so chaotic. So we paved over our streets that were muddy. We cut down most of the trees because they were impossible to navigate. You know, insects are an absolute pain inside an office. So you sort of want to get rid of everything. And then at some point, we've come to a kind of rather grander realisation that we are indeed connected to everything and to uh, particularly the kind of environments outside. So we needed to kind of have natural pathways through the cities, which is why you want to create parks where there is biodiversity, where insects can land, where pollination can happen, where birds can stop on their way to somewhere else. So just kind of integrating it entirely back into the system. And city planners are beginning to build this in in various quite interesting ways. And people who live in our cities are doing their bit too. Let's hear now from Natalie Cotton. She's a city dweller, but she also happens to be secretary of the London Beekeepers Association. Honeybees have become quite symbolic for city dwellers as a a means of demonstrating that they are saving nature. In a way, it's an easy thing to grasp. Um, People can understand the the plight of the bee um, and it can lead to a great conversation about actually, well, bees and flowers go together. So actually anyone in the city can do their bit to help biodiversity simply by planting up a window box. You're listening to Long Story Short, the podcast from Arcadis UK about the cities we live, work and play in. We're talking about natural capital. Can you put a value on natural resources, be it social, financial or otherwise? And what happens when there are competing interests? Martina, can you genuinely tell a client that if they plant a tree, that their development will benefit in such or such a way? Yes, you can. And um, we have produced studies showing, for example, uh, Northwest Bicester was an eco town in Oxfordshire. And we looked at the treatment train for waters, which was sustainable drainage. So rather than putting in great big concrete pipes, we're putting in rain gardens, swales, which are green areas which water can run through. And we calculated that the benefits per household were around £750 per annum per household um, from these sustainable drainage systems. We're working with Thames Water as well to look at um, retrofitting the sustainable drainage into cities. So yes, there are ways that we can calculate how much money um, these green infrastructure can add in terms of benefits. And especially when you're building in, let's say, the the centre of London, there's the idea of the million pound tree, isn't there, Joey? Yes, so there's been a complete um, sort of turnaround in how nature is viewed. One of the kind of great examples of natural capital is that a tree in a garden square or street in a kind of residential area of London is not just a tree. A combination of its ability to store water, store rain, clean the air and also look aesthetically nice means eventually you can look at that tree and say, actually, that tree is not worth... £2,000 in timber value, it's worth a million pounds. And part of that, the reason it's so high, particularly in London, is that people want to live near trees because of the aesthetic value and it boosts the house prices in the vicinity. It becomes incredibly valuable for the people who are in fact trading on the periphery of it. Another example of this is um, a development called Woodbury Down in northeast London, which had been a kind of essentially a reservoir with fencing around it so nobody could go in. The Land next to it was being developed for housing, and suddenly the developers were persuaded that, in fact, this this whole reservoir was an amazing nature reserve. Lo and behold, the house prices go up when they can come up for sale, and also 
Woodbury Downs suddenly becomes a fully functioning nature reserve again and it's absolutely flourishing at the moment. How easy, Martina, is it for you to persuade the clients that you work with that something as sexy as sustainable drainage is actually going to bring them extra money at the end of the day, that it is worth it for them to make that extra step which they might not have thought of or might not have thought necessary? I think with house builders, it is quite tangible because they can see the increased um, house prices. With other sectors, the water sector, actually, Yorkshire Water are doing amazing things in natural capital, um, realising that if we can manage water in the uplands, we can have cleaner water, um, less uh, runoff from agricultural fields. So the, the water industry, they're getting it too. I think where we are struggling more is in inner city developments where every square metre obviously is a valuable land. So to give up a little bit of that square metre for green space, we're still seeing a challenge. But Joy, the, the issue that comes in here is if you have private developers who are who can see a tangible profit, that's one thing. But there is a big issue of budget constraints, especially when you're doing things with councils. A council, I'm sure, would love to work on improving air quality and uh, landscaping parks. But at the end of the day, if they're under the cosh to build more homes and get them up quickly, really, they're not going to think about much else other than bricks and mortar, are they? The point about natural capital as an environmental economic system is you begin to look at those assets like trees that clean the air, or in the case of something like Yorkshire water, forests on the banks that absorb the water on the way down that control water flows, and start saying, hang on, there's actually quite a cheap way of fixing pollution problems, excessive water, water storage, water flows. And that does not involve high-tech solutions. It involves, in fact, the most technologically advanced solutions which have been developed by nature over millions and millions and millions of years. And in fact, we can see the financial benefits of them, we can actually reintegrate them into the systems. There have been difficulties with joined up thinking, however. Let's hear again from Baroness Young. She's a former chair of the Environment Agency and she's currently head of the Woodland Trust. She gave us an example of how hard it is sometimes to get different groups to work together. It's really difficult to construct the value chain that actually produces change. The Environment Agency has been trying, for example, on natural flood risk management by persuading farmers and trying to get grants for them to plant trees in upland river catchments so that the water doesn't run straight into the rivers and flood Carlisle. But you can imagine that that involves agricultural budgets, involves the Environment Agency's flood risk management budget, it involves house builders, it involves local authorities, it involves anybody who deals with floods, it involves the insurance industry. Incredibly difficult value chains to construct. So as yet, I'm not wholly convinced that we've got an operational model yet. So Martina, would you say that Baroness Young has a point there? So there are, there are various systems, but they can be quite hard to access the finances. So we have advised the Environment Agency on cost benefits of managing water through natural processes and the same with the inner city suds. It, it's demonstrating what benefits you can get and then showing actually that it doesn't cost that much. But part of that is also turning into tangible money. So we are also talking to financial institutions about how we can actually get a better rate of loan for people that are building resilient green infrastructure 
such resilient cities because that is going to become ever more important as we see how climate change is affecting our cities, affecting flash flooding, the heat. We even have degradation of tarmac. Sometimes it gets so hot it melts. So I think the lender piece is very, very important here that we get the financial investors to realise that investing in the future means investing in resilient cities. What about us as citizens, Joy? Um, If you walk into any upmarket supermarket, you will probably see trolleys being filled with large bottles of expensive water that people think nothing of spending up to £3 on. Yet we sometimes get very cross about having to spend money on the stuff that comes out of our tap. We assume that that should come for free. Well, the stuff that comes out of our tap can't come free because at some point it has to be filtered, processed and all the pipes need to be looked after. So although water, unlike air and soil, is in th- you know one of those things that we think that the earth is gifted to us for our use, the companies clearly who run the water systems need to make a profit because they are privatised companies. Now, unless we want a nationalised system in this world, we have to accept that there has to be some financial incentives for them. Again, you go back to natural capital and you begin to say to those companies that are making profit, you may be able to be make a profit in a more sustainable way than you are doing at the moment. There are alternatives. There are ways of doing it that, in fact, are beneficial to everybody. The issue of profit, though, Martina, has become incredibly thorny in the last few years. It has made the issue of money and natural capital quite a problematic one for us, hasn't it? I think that there is a bit of a mindset change that needs to come about, which is happening. So the water companies have been challenged by Ofwat to put, to do better by nature. So we are going through a process where we're advising water companies on their biodiversity action plans, how they can manage their land to be better for for nature. And we're working with Thames Water, um, who have had a, a piece of land that they gifted on a lease to a school called Ambitious About Autism, a treehouse school. And they are building an ecotherapy garden with our help on that land, which is bringing communities together. Well, a little earlier, I went along to Treehouse School in North London to find out how it works. Hello, I'm Julia Lampard. I work for Ambitious About Autism and one of the things that I do is a project that we call Saplings. Here in the allotment we're surrounded by an explosion of green, trees, wildflowers and an abundance of ripe veg. We've got a massive range of stuff here. So we've got rainbow chard, very pretty, beetroot, uh, purple runner beans, tomatoes, potatoes, kale... The children that attend Treehouse School, they all have complex autism. We've been doing some small bits of horticulture with them and they were doing brilliantly, but we didn't have the space. So when Thames came along and said to us, um, we'll give you that piece of land on a peppercorn rent, we said, yeah, we'd love that. The school rents the land for a pound a year, but Julia says the benefits are priceless. They responded really well, particularly some pupils who don't find it easy to be contained in the classroom environment. They really like being outside. Uh, We're keen to engage positively with our local community. We're in a very public space. We're on an alleyway, which a lot of people use as a through cut. And actually, we get lots of people offering to give us resources, which is completely fantastic. I say no to nothing. For me, that's great to be able to talk to people and they're always incredibly engaged and ask lots of questions and are really interested in what we're doing. So that's, that's been a great um, benefit as well. Julia Lampard from the charity Ambitious About Autism there, speaking to me earlier in an allotment in Muswell Hill. 
You're listening to Long Story Short, the city's podcast from Arcadis UK. We're talking about natural capital today and joining me in the studio is Martina Gervin from Arcadis UK and the independent journalist Joy Ladico. So what needs to be done here? There's a lot of talk about the word responsibility, stewardship, making sure that the natural capital agenda is listened to and recognised. One thing that a lot of people suggest, Martina, is that the words are just too complicated for us to actually find any of this relevant to our daily lives. And I agree, we don't do ourselves any favours. So we started off with the term biodiversity, but most people thought biodiversity was something to do with washing powder. And then we moved on to the term ecosystem services. Um, Now we've moved on to the term natural capital, but we also use words such as green infrastructure, sustainable drainage, water-sensitive design, blue-brown infrastructure. So it is difficult and it is challenging. And the different sectors that we work with, say water and transportation, finance institutions, all have their own language as how they relate to this. So I think part of the work we're doing is to make it tangible to different people. Except everybody who's working in any sort of company, in government and individuals actually respond to things in an emotional way. And there were a couple of stories went round about the collapse of the insect population and a guy who was cycling with his son and he just said, it's very odd because when I was a boy, I would have a mouthful of insects by the end of this cycle ride and now I don't. And uh, he was a biologist and went in and looked at the numbers and he saw the collapse of the insect population. These were two stories that went around last year that were massively circulated. Everybody went, oh, I get it. You know, if we have managed to decimate a population of insects that we've previously disregarded, we have a problem. How do you persuade your clients that natural capital is important? It depends on the client. It depends what element they're interested in, whether it's master planning a greenfield development to retain the best bits of nature to make it really work for them. So we've worked on biodiversity metrics to ensure that we're delivering a net gain in biodiversity when we're looking at development. And we're also then looking at the ecosystem services that come from that. So we can have a a strategy for a company to show them how they can reduce their dependency on nature and increase their opportunities. So, for example, for Manchester Airport, we're working on a green vision for them to look at how they can better use their land holdings, offsetting carbon, opening up their site to recreation. And when it comes to big infrastructure projects, Baroness Young has said that natural capital has often fallen by the wayside because big infrastructure projects sometimes feel that they're so important that they should be allowed to ride roughshod over natural capital. Would you agree with that, Martina? I think big infrastructure is a challenge because it, it, it is planning at a different scale. But we have worked for Transport for London, for example, And we employed a natural capital offsetting strategy to make sure that we delivered over and above what was absolutely necessary. And this was talking about land that other people might not think is very valuable. But Transport for London wanted to really make sure that they were leaving the area in a better situation than we found it. So I think there is a challenge, but we have now got the tools that we can actually make things a bit better. So tell us if you had any advice or one big fix to end on, uh, something hopefully achievable, what would it be for you, Martina? Well, we are in a period of huge capital expenditure. We are spending a lot of money doing things at the minute. And if you just think about it at the beginning, you can incorporate into your project 
all of that green infrastructure to get all of those benefits of the future and resilience for your piece of infrastructure you're creating. If every client does it, if every sector does it, I think we can make a huge difference. My fix would be uh, rather like when you talk about sort of Nike having to prove where its uh, trainers are made is to get all big developments to actually provide a list of where they're sourcing their materials from. So it becomes completely transparent what is being taken, which assets are being used up. And at the end of that, you have the question, Okay, well, you've taken these with a motivation for enhancing humanity. However, humanity is also enhanced by having good environment. Please also be explicit about where you're going to put it back. Joy, you're absolutely right in that where our goods and services come from can be very untransparent because they get lost in that supply chain. Arcadis have developed a tool called Bioscope that you can take what product you're using and how much you're using. And it uses a really complicated algorithm based on commodity trading to work out where your impact is and how intense your impact is on biodiversity. So you might be using a product that you don't realise actually has a really high intense impact over in Africa or uh, South America. Then you can sort of pull back and take a look at, well, do I have alternative sources for this product? So it's a bit of a scoping tool to engage with what you're using. And if people have the opportunity to think about it, I think we really will make different decisions. Those fixes are both for big business. Martina? How can we take a little bit more control? I think it has to be bottom up as well as top down. We do have these opportunities to change our behaviour, also to drive government, to drive your your own school. What green space do your children have access to? My son's school have a towpath garden. So they've made use of a little bit of the canal, taking it over. And with the help of all the parents and the children, they're growing things on the canal, which gives children this access to nature, experience with nature. We need to engage our children, engage ourselves and demand more, really. Joy, what's your everyday fix? Uh, My everyday fix is actually to massively reduce car use in cities. And it's a very simple thing of saying, please, in a city where we already live very close to each other, we have to make some compromises in order to make the environment better. And that brings us to the end of today's programme. Martina Gavin and Joy Lodico, thank you very much indeed for joining me in the studio. And if you enjoyed that, then more podcasts will be popping up every month at arcadis.com slash UK. Well, there'll be lots of extras too, all to do with the future of our cities. You've been with Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis UK. I'm Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>